Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 226 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, I am recording this, uh, you're going to hear it a little bit later, but I'm recording this the day after Eugene Peterson died. And I got to tell you, I'm sad. I mean, I'm, I'm glad for him. He is going into his great reward and uh, experiencing so much of what he wrote about in this life while he was with us. Uh, but I'm sad for us because, man, one of the great voices of our generation is gone. And that's happened a few times over the last few years, you know, losing Dallas Willard, Earlier on, you know, think about Henry Nowen and, and others who have passed on. And uh, I just, uh, you know, it, it leaves me really thinking, like, what really matters in this life? And I just, I just want to say to you, I want to encourage you to really nurture your soul. I think that's one of the things that Eugene Peterson did so well. And I'm so grateful for, uh, we'll link to it in the show notes, but I had a chance a year ago to interview him. It was one of the last interviews he ever gave. It's episode 152 of the podcast, 30 minutes with Eugene. That was just like drinking from a deep stream. And so I just hope you're nurturing your soul, uh, taking some time to reflect and really, you know, focus on becoming rather than doing. I think that's the key to that sort of thing. I wrote a blog post about it recently as well. And, you know, I just, I just hope that as so many young leaders are listening to this. We need young leaders who will step into that void and uh, be the Eugene Petersons or the Dallas Willards of the next generation. And who knows, one of those may be you. I definitely feel like I'm in the shallow end of the pool, but that was one of the things I was trying to do with the release of my last book, Didn't See It Coming. It's really about the soul work. It's really about working on your character, not just on your competency. If you haven't checked it out yet, uh, I'd love for you to do that. You can head on over to didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. But uh, my bookshelf is full of Eugene Peterson books. And who knows, maybe one day it will be full of your books as well. Really grateful for him. Just wanted to reflect with that because that's sort of the why behind uh, what we do here. We talk about all kinds of things on this podcast as you know. And today's guest is Adam Hamilton. He is one of the most influential pastors in the United Methodist Church, like period, leads one of the fastest growing, largest churches in the United States. And he's actually doing it in a mainline context. It's amazing. He preached at the National Prayer Service. He's the author of multiple best-selling books. He writes all the time. And uh, you're, you're going to find this fascinating because he doesn't use the standard model in his church either at Church of the Resurrection, which he founded. So Adam and I have a wide ranging conversation. Thrilled to have him on the podcast. I know you are absolutely going to love it. And Adam, thanks for agreeing to come on. And uh, he's got this really cool thing too, where I'm doing the interview with him via video and I'm seeing this like yellowed computer. And I thought, oh no, don't tell me his church is making him work on like this 30-year-old, you know, 40-megabit hard drive computer. <laughs> I asked him about it when the interview was over. And he's like, hey, you know what? That is actually part of my collection. He's got this collection of vintage Apple computers, which is super cool. So you're going to like him even more for that. Hey, I want to talk to you a little bit about a conversation that we've been having uh, on the podcast, and that's about healthcare costs. 
Uh, last time I sat down and had a conversation with Justin Clements, the co-founder and the president of Remodel Health, I asked him about people who are going bankrupt because of healthcare costs. And that's a real concern of his and the people at Remodel Health. So this time I asked him, where can people go to negotiate better rates to keep them out of bankruptcy? Like, where can people go? Well, number one is uh, their employer. If they're getting their health insurance through their employer, their employer has to make the decision for them most of the time. And, and so they got to talk with their employer about, hey, can we get a lower deductible or is there something we can we can do to better safeguard if and when something catastrophic happens? And that's what most employees and most employers don't realize is that you can negotiate individually with your employer. Now, you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, I got 30 employees or 300 or, you know, eight, and we have a one-size-fits-all healthcare plan. Well, not anymore. That's what Remodel Health is reinventing. What if you could have healthcare plans that were tailored to individual needs of employees? So, you know, you have one person who needs X and they get X and another needs Y and they get Y and variable plans for different people whether you have a few employees or hundreds or thousands. If you're a faith-based organization, check out remodelhealth.com forward slash carry to find out more and receive a free quote and buying guide today. Did you know on average, most churches will free up between 60 and $100,000 a year to repurpose toward projects that can help you do more in your ministry? It's an amazing model. Check it out, remodelhealth.com forward slash carry to find out more. And speaking of the internet, which appears to be here to say, let's talk about the future. I really believe that strong leadership requires a strong engagement strategy. I've been blogging about that for years. It's not about ministering to your members just on Sunday anymore. There are actually seven days a week to connect with your community and nurture them. And that requires a mobile strategy. So the question is, what's yours? What's your giving strategy, your engagement strategy, your mobile strategy? I love what PushPay is doing. And I think they are the leader at keeping what we do at the cutting edge of technology. They have a huge heart to serve the church and they help more than 7,000 customers process billions, yes, that's with a B, of dollars in generosity last year. And they can help you too. So right now, there's a special offer for listeners of this podcast. Go to pushpay.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, and you can sign up to talk to a representative who has a special offer just for these podcast listeners. No obligation, just a chance to talk to an expert in church technology. I hope you check that out. Uh, pushpay.com forward slash carry, special offer for a limited time. Go check that out right now. And in the meantime, let's jump into my conversation with Adam Hamilton. And I think when we talk about his long legacy in ministry, uh, hopefully uh, the little, what was that, homily on Eugene Peterson and character uh, will ring even more true. Hey, it's what we need. We need leaders who serve for the long term. And here is my conversation with Adam Hamilton. Well, Adam Hamilton, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad that we finally had a chance to connect. I am too, Carrie. I've appreciated what you've written and I'm really grateful to have a chance to visit with you in person today. Yeah, well, I'd love for you, uh, I've, I've followed you, as have many of my colleagues for years. You're part of the United Methodist Church. We have a lot of friends in that denomination, a lot of good people. Um, but uh, you're kind of the outlier in that denomination, one of the fastest growing and the largest in your denomination, and certainly one of the most influential mainline churches in America. Um, you've also happened to sell more than 2 million books, which if anybody is wondering... 
that's a lot of books. Okay. It's <laughs> a lot of books. <laughs> I'd, I'd love you to back up the story and tell us how you got involved in ministry, uh, how, how you got involved at your church, and a little sure. bit about the journey in a nutshell. You bet. So uh, I'll just start off. I was baptized Catholic as a baby, uh, oh. pretty much nominally religious growing up. My folks would take me to church from time to time. Uh, Mom was Protestant, uh, Church of Christ. Dad was Catholic. And so they tried to find something between Catholic and Church of Christ. And they ended up at a Methodist church. We went there for several years. And then my folks got divorced. We dropped out. And it was as a freshman in high school, I was invited to a little Pentecostal church. And I began reading my Bible there. I, I considered myself an atheist. and But I went because they had cute girls. And <laughs> I started to uh, uh, as I was going, they were all, you know, they all carried their Bibles with them. And I thought I should read what's in this book. So I got out the Catholic Bible my grandmother had given me uh, when I was a child, a letter from the Pope in the front, how to pray the rosary, got it. And I began reading it. And uh, I made a commitment my freshman year in high school to read the entire Bible. So as I'm reading through it, I got to the New Testament and read the Gospel of Matthew and was really taken by Jesus. Uh, read the Gospel of Mark and, and at that point, not sure about the resurrection, but I, the rest of it made sense to me. And I was compelled by Jesus read the Gospel of Mark, and I found myself really, again, drawn to him. Got to the Gospel of Luke, and I love Luke's Gospel, the Gospel of the nobodies, the marginalized. And and uh, when I got to the end of the Gospel, for the first time, the resurrection made sense to me. I thought, you know, how else could the story end? If it ended with Jesus in the tomb, then evil had the final word and hate and sin. And and uh, and so if, if somehow he was representing God, he was God, then as a 14-year-old kid, I thought, this is how it had to end. He had to, you know, he had to be raised. And I got on my knees as a little kid, as a, not as a little kid, as a teenager, I got on my knees and said, okay, Jesus, I want to follow you. And I know I'm just 14, but if you can do anything with me, I pray you will. And heard a call to ministry when I was 16 and preaching on Youth Sunday at our little Assembly of God church. And uh, got married right out of high school because Jesus was coming back at any moment. That's what our pastor told us every Sunday. So we got married the week after graduation, and we've been married 36 years now. And we- uh, Amazing. Yeah, I went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma to be a Pentecostal pastor, but I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of theological questions. And my freshman year in college, my best friend, who was my best man at my wedding, and his older brother, who was my youth pastor, uh, were both electrocuted. They were killed in a terrible mm-hmm. accident. Left me with a lot of questions about theodicy and the issue of God's sovereignty and the providence yeah. of God and how we make sense of God's you know work in, a, in the world where suffering happens. And and I began to really wrestle with that and started searching and, and ended up uh, trying to figure out, you know, once I sort of resolved that, it took a year of sort of working through that. As I came to some resolution, which I captured in a little book I wrote some years ago called Why, I, um, I found myself searching for a new church home, a place where I, where it was okay to ask questions, where it was, uh, you know, I just... And I love the Assemblies of God. I was really grateful for the church I was in, the people. Mm-hmm. They were so great. But it just, for me, I was, when I was in college, I was like, there's something else I'm looking for. And ended up reading more about John Wesley and early Methodism and found myself drawn back to that church I'd gone to when I was a kid. And I joined the United Methodist Church. And anyway, we uh, went to Southern Methodist University in Dallas uh, for seminary and uh, graduated. And after two years, I started Church of the Resurrection, my wife and I and our two kids. We started 28 years ago with four people in a dream of reaching thinking people who were non-religious and nominally religious and helping them become deeply committed Christians and sending them out to transform the world every day. And it's been an amazing journey since then. The church has grown like crazy, and most of the people here are, are those non-religious or nominally religious people we were talking about. And they've become you know, people who really are striving to be the real deal, striving to follow Jesus. Use a phrase that really intrigues me, thinking people. So 
Um, can you unpack that a little bit? Because I yeah. think, you know, it strikes me as a former, you know, reformed uh, Presbyterian. Um, that was one of the things that really drew me to that stream was, oh, you don't have to park your brain. Is that what right. you're getting at? Absolutely. You know, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was an Oxford professor. And so the Wesleyan revival, the 18th century evangelical revival that he led, started on a college campus, it started on the campus mm-hmm. of Oxford. And so this idea of uniting, you know, both the head and the heart was really important in early Methodism. And I, I find that many non-religious people have been turned off by presentations of Christianity that don't make sense to them, that seem mm-hmm. either intellectually uh, vapid or uh, you know, unable to withstand critical scrutiny. And, and so, you know, I love to really try to engage those folks to try to help them think about how you can be a thinking person. You can have questions, you can be an intellectual and at the same time, a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and, uh, so that's been our focus where the church is located in a community where a large number of people have graduate degrees and we've reached a large number of folks who are highly educated and it's been a great, you know, it's been a great ride. Yeah, do you think the internet has changed the game a little bit? I mean, you started 28 years ago, and now it seems like everybody's got, you know, as I often say to our team, you know, strongly held, weakly formed opinions. Yeah, and yeah I think that's Sometimes right. they're strongly held and they're strongly formed, but often they're, they're strongly held and weakly formed opinions. You know, now you can Google your answer to everything, anything. Has that, has that changed preaching for you over the years? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, uh, the internet and technology has dramatically improved, I think, or has the potential to dramatically improve people's preaching. We have access yeah. to information that no generation of previous Christians ever had access to. I mean, we can look at things in the original languages. We can, you know, we can research what early church fathers said. We have a chance to, I mean, we just have access to information and it's, it can be overwhelming, but it, to me, it is exciting because it means that I can address things in sermons that, you know, it, 30 or 40 years ago, I would have never had the access to the information that I can include in messages. And and uh, so that is exciting. And I think it, it also, there is some accountability because your people can look up whatever you're preaching about. You know, <laughs> they're they fact-checking you. Yeah, right. they're fact-checking you. Yeah. Yeah, I think about those guys who, uh, who you know, take other people's sermons and re-preach them and then get caught, you know, found out because somebody's listening to that other preacher's sermons out there. So I think it's, uh, you do, I think it does raise the standard in our preaching and gives us lots of potential to have even better preaching than we've ever had before. But it's also possible to do, if you're not doing your homework, to do, you know, shoddy work and end up with something that's maybe not not as well formed as it could have been or should have been. Do you find that the average person attending your church over the years has become more educated because of access to information? Would you say when you're running into the people you're trying to reach, let's say a neighbor, a friend, a colleague, well, probably not a colleague, but because you're in ministry, yeah. but you know somebody that you're you're building into. Do you find the questions have gotten better, or the positions have gotten harder, or more entrenched because they're better read these days, or not really much of a change? Yeah, I you know I think so. There's a couple of varieties of folks that are showing up in our in our congregations. One are those who are really well informed and they love to study and grow deeper. And for those folks, the internet has really helped them be able to have access to information. But you mentioned something a second ago, and that's the ability to discern which strands of information is good information. And this is true. You know, you go to the Christian bookstore and, uh, you know, small groups will go and they try to find a good book to study. Well, what, how do they decide that? Well, they look at the cover. What is the, does the cover look like? You know, and anymore, of course, we always see thumbnails of covers because we're buying things on Amazon. So we're not even holding it in our hands to thumb through it. 
And, uh, and so if, if all you have is the cover to go by, or here's somebody who has a doctorate and, you know, and you don't know how to discern where is this person coming from? What is, what education is poured into them? What's their, you know, or like if you're looking for books, who's the publisher? There are certain publishers probably have a little mm-hmm. more integrity than other publishers do. And so just because something's in writing or just because it's on the internet doesn't make it true. And I yeah. think there are some people who understand that and, and other people who can be confused by the cacophony of voices and not being able to discern which ones are good voices and which ones are voices that maybe aren't very well informed or, uh, but I think for the most part, here, here's the other, so we find folks who are looking for more information and searching and using the internet in this way. And then we find a lot of folks, I think, in almost every church who come in and just say, pastor, just tell me what to believe. You know, just tell me, tell me what to think. I believe it because you believe it. And, you know, here I keep pushing, you know, I, I want to push people to go, no, I want you to, I want you to study to show yourself approved. I want you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. I want you to actually, I want you to ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. I want you to ask questions of me. You know, just because I spent 20 hours working on this sermon doesn't mean I'm right. I yeah. want you to engage your intellect in, in this. And so, uh, so I, I, I find that there are some folks who are, uh, you know, come and just wait and even really thoughtful people. I, I met a guy, I know a guy, I've known him for a long time, is a uh, very successful businessman, um, well-respected in his field. But when it comes to religion, he just sort of accepts whatever's handed to him, you know? And I'm like, really? You're, you're espousing things that are just like, these are nonsensical. But, you know, if there's somebody who's passionate, charismatic, who tells them, then they, then he kind of buys it. And, and he suspends his logic when it comes to his faith. And it's like, don't do that. You know, yeah. keep asking questions when it comes to your faith. There's a lot of bad religion out there and a lot of Christianity that's not thoughtfully conceived or, or carefully considered. What do you find if you're, you know, in an area, your campuses are in an area where you have people who have graduate degrees, you know, college education. What are the questions they're asking? And then what are some approaches that are really helpful to building them? Because I've always, as a background as a lawyer, you know, spent 10 years in university, I've always kind of felt like these are often the forgotten people. They, have, they do have strongly for, held opinions, and sometimes they are strongly formed, and sometimes it can be harder to reach them than others. So I'm, I'm really curious what you're learning in that area. Sure. Well, one of the things that we do regularly is find out what questions people are asking. And sometimes I've even preached a couple of times a sermon series where on Christmas Eve candlelight, which is our, you know, our biggest services of the year. Uh, we've had people write down their questions like, you know, and this was before we were really using the Internet as much. But uh, the first time I did this, it was probably 1996 or so. And I said, uh, you know, Christmas Eve, I've given you a three by five card in your bulletin. And I'd like for you to take it out. I want you to write down the three hardest questions you can think of that you've wondered about when it comes to faith. And we're going to compile all those. We're going to take the six most frequently asked questions. And after Christmas Eve is over with, starting the second Sunday of the new year, we're going to take your your questions that you've asked. And these are all, you know, two-thirds of these are visitors who are just there for Christmas Eve. But we're going to let you set the agenda for the sermon series. And we're going to take those questions. And so we, you know, we did a series on questions thinking people ask that keep them from faith. And the questions, you know, I knew what the questions would be up front because I'd had plenty of conversations with folks, but letting them set the agenda for the sermons was really, you know, led them to want to come back. So, you know, the number one question people wrestle with, especially, especially true of non-religious people, but I'll tell you, even Christians wrestle, wrestle with this regularly is again, 
you know, the question of theodicy. Why do bad things happen to good people? How do we make sense of this? My, you know, my loved one who went to church all their lives and they had cancer or my, you know, uh, friend's daughter who was raped or, you know, how do I make sense of a good and loving God in the light of that? And so helping people think about God's work in the world and what God does and doesn't do uh, is a really, I mean, I just find that's critical for both the people who are Christians and those who are wrestling. You know, we're asking questions about how do we read the Bible? Uh, how do we make sense of the Bible? Where uh, I think there are thoughtful people who recognize some of the challenging parts of the Bible. Uh, what do we do with genocide? What do we do with, uh, you know, passages about the role of women and how women are treated? Why do we same-sex marriage? All of these things are questions that people are asking, saying, okay, I've heard, quote, the Bible says, or the Bible says that I believe that that settles it. But it doesn't seem to be that kind of book that that's, you know, it, it seems like there should be either... I, I want to be able to question that, or maybe I need to find a different religion or a different book because I can't. Yeah. Some of these things I can't buy. And, uh, you know, so those are the kind of questions. What do we do with people of other religions? Why are there so many hypocrites in the church? Why are Christians so mean or such jerks? Sometimes I hear those questions. Mm -hmm. um, so those are not the questions that my faithful, committed church members are asking, but those are the questions our friends are asking. And we try to answer those questions a lot here at Resurrection. So we just finished a sermon series in January and February. It was a reworking of a sermon series I did about 15 years ago on the religions of the world, Christianity and world religions. And we asked questions about, you know, what is our theology of religions? How do we make sense of these other religions? Why, if there's one God, did, you know, does God not just, you know, show everybody the way it is? And, uh, you know, this, this is the way the questions often asked. And uh, so we spent, you know, five weeks studying other faiths. And, and each week we talk about here's, and with great humility and just graciousness, you know, here's what our Buddhist friends believe. And, uh, and here's where we find some common ground, and here's where we disagree. And it, it's okay for us to disagree, but this is what Christianity, you know, this is, this is a different answer Christianity gives than, say, Buddhism gives. And here's some common places, you know, and, and where you can say, you know, I really value this about my Hindu neighbors. I really, I love this about them, and that's something we share in common as Christians and Hindus. Now, here's some places where we differ, and, but that doesn't mean I can't love them. And, uh, and when you approach it that way, you know, People are going like, wow, that's really cool. I've just learned something about my Hindu neighbors I didn't know. And I've learned how to be gracious for my pastor and how to be humble in how I approach my own faith. Or after hearing about all these faiths, you know, I, we had a, hundreds of people say, I, I think I decided I'd like to be a Christian, you know. Mm. And uh, so it's, it's, it's that kind of stuff, though, that we're regularly trying to, trying to address. Why did you decide to start a church? Yeah. So I had a passion for wanting to reach, again, people who were outside of the church. I wanted to find who are the folks who, like me, have a lot of questions and uh, and for whatever reason, they've stepped away. And I and I felt like in the community where I had come to faith in Christ was where we wanted to start this church. It's, the church was located just a couple of miles from where I lived in high school. And uh, so I thought if we, and there was no United Methodist Church in, in the middle of that community. So I thought if we could start a church and start it intentionally focused on the people who aren't churched, which of course every church wants to do, I don't know. I just felt like God, God wants me to do that. And, and as we began to lay the church, you know, began to design the church, put it together, we designed it specifically to look much more like a mainline church. I mean, we're a United Methodist Church. So almost everybody in 1990 was doing sort of Willow Creek style worship, you know, the video screens and the contemporary music, and it was seeker sensitive and all that. And we tried to be sensitive to the target audience, you know, of non-religious people. But we thought most of those pe people, when they went to church as children, and most of them went to church as children, went to a mainline church. Mm. So maybe instead of hiding the fact that we're mainline, maybe we should actually 
have them walk in and go, oh, this feels like the church I went to when I was a kid. So I, I would wear a pulpit robe on Sundays. We would have, uh, you know, the Lord's Prayer. We would have, we had a choir. We were singing traditional hymns, prayer of confession. And it was interesting. There was 20 churches that started in this community in a five-year period of time. And it was this one that took off. I mean, mm. it just exploded and people were like, yes, you know, and the thing was, it looked familiar to them. And at the same time, it felt relevant. It felt meaningful. It moved their hearts. It, they felt, you know, a call to action. They felt intellectually, I think, you know, challenged. They, they felt their hearts strangely warmed, as John Wesley would talk about it. And they felt called to go live out their faith with their hands. And, and that's what we've really emphasized, the head, the heart, and the hands, uh, that we are going to speak, you know, we're going to offer the faith in a way that's intellectually uh, meaningful that teaches both the, good theology and teaches scripture and uh, and the ability to critically engage theology and 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 faith and scripture. We're going to lead people to a transformational relationship with God through Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts and lives, and we're going to send people out every week. There's going to be a challenge as to how you live out your faith so that God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven in some small way through you, and that mm. that seemed to be a recipe for people inviting their friends and and coming to faith and changing the world. How has your liturgy or style of service evolved over the last 28 years? Yeah, so we have, uh, here at our Leewood campus, we have five services. Actually, now we have six services a weekend. And in those six services, two of them are traditional with choir and orchestra. And I, I wear a pulpit robe still in those services. And we have a little bit of liturgy. We might responsibly read a psalm or something else. And so two are like that. And four of them are more modern, contemporary uh, you know, whatever language you want so to use. So you brought in the it. band and the screens. And yeah, band, screens, and all that. And we use the screens in the traditional as well. But yeah, and it's interesting. Sunday, so we just launched two weeks ago a uh, 11 o'clock modern service at the same time as our 11 o'clock traditional service. The 11 o'clock traditional last Sunday had 2,200 people in it. The uh, modern service had 800. It's a new, you know, it's, it's in a room that's a bit smaller. It had 800 people. I had a young family walk in brand new first time. I could tell they had no idea who I was. And I'm like, Hey, how are you? You know, and I was greeting him. They said, we're here for the first time. You know, we're, 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 you know, anxious to see what your church is like. So great. Uh, you know, let me tell you, we have a service that's more rock and roll on in the foundry hall down the, down the way here. Then we've got the traditional with choir and orchestra. So we'll, we'll go check out the one with the rock and roll. It's great. Or, you know, I don't know if it's rock and roll, but you know, more modern music. So I said, let me take you in the sanctuary first. We've got, you know, there's, we have this beautiful stained glass window that tells a story really kind of the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. It's a hundred foot wide and 35 feet tall. And it's just, it's anyway. And the, you know, so I said, well, come in here. I want you to see the sanctuary in the stainless window. And then I want to send you down this other way. So they went down the other way. I left after the first hymn in the traditional service to go see how the modern service was doing. You know, I thought I want to go check it out and see how they're doing. And I'm walking down there to the modern service. And they're walking back to the traditional. I'm like, what's going on? So, you know, I didn't connect with this as much. We really want to go back and experience your worship in the sanctuary. I'm like, wow, <laughs> we had 160 people join the church Sunday afternoon. We have this thing called coffee with the pastors. And, and so is our, you know, we do this every month or so. And uh, there was a young couple in their twenties that were joining. I'm like, Hey, it's great to see, you, you know, what service do you worship at 11 o'clock? I said, you worship in the modern service. Oh no, no. We, you know, I sing in the choir and he plays in the orchestra. I'm like, Wow. Okay. Cool. You know? <laughs> so it's and not so, all gray hairs. Yeah. I mean, we, it is a lot of gray hairs, but, but I find yeah that there are young adults who are really drawn to the traditional and there are young adults who are really drawn to the modern. There are 70 year olds who are really drawn to the modern and 70 year olds who are really drawn to the traditional. So I love the fact that we have a wide array of worship experiences, same sermon in all of those, uh, different music, 
And, but even in the modern services, one of the things we tell all of our modern band leaders is every week, at least one hymn. So I want you to, I want you to draw from our tradition, rearrange it if you need to, rewrite it. I don't care if you rewrite the words and keep the tune the same, but, but I want us to ha- have an anchor in our tradition while we're at the same time introducing new hymns and new praise songs and other things. And I think that's a, uh, and I want us to be thoughtful. I want the theology, whether the music is different in style, I want the theology to be the same. So I want people to come in and know that's our DNA, whether we're in the modern service or the traditional service. Do you do all the, te- well, not, I'm sure you don't teach every single Sunday, but are you the principal communicator? And then do you do video into the different venues and campuses? Right. So I, uh, I preach probably 40 Sundays a year. Yeah. And as I'm 54 now, so my goal is to preach one less Sunday a year over the next 10 years so that the church is used to me not, not being in the pulpit as much. Um, so the sermons are recorded on Saturday night at our Saturday night service. We uh, tweak them. You know, if I say tonight or something that's time sensitive, right. we pull that out. If there's some part of it that doesn't feel like it's connected, we pull that out. And then that's uploaded to the internet and it's downloaded at each of our campuses and in our venues. And we, uh, and so we use that. And then we have some churches across the country who also use it. They're partner churches. And so they will either use it or they'll, the pastor will watch it and we'll send the manuscripts to them and they, then they rework the sermon to make it their own in their context. We have about, I think about 15 churches that are like that. How many people attend your particular locations, the four locations over the course of a weekend? Yeah, so the Leewood campus, which is the where I preach live, we'll have between Sunday, I think we had 6,800. Um, we'll run anywhere from, during the school year, 6,000 to 7,500, 8,000, something like that at the, well, probably 7,500 at the Leewood campus. That doesn't include children in Sunday school. That's just, just worshipers. Uh, and then we have at our West campus, another 1,000. Uh, our downtown campus in downtown Kansas City has another 1,000, a little over that now. And we have a Blue Springs campus that runs about 350. So those are, wow. and then we'll have an online campus, which will run between 25 and 3,500 on a normal Sunday. And those are, again, they're joining us for worship. They're logging in, they're giving, they're signing up to volunteer, they're joining the church, all that kind of stuff. So you're, you're not even including online, you're pushing 10,000 right. people then a weekend, which is, right. which is exceptional in a mainline context these days. Um, right. Is that, yeah. is that the largest or one of the largest United Methodist churches? No, oh, it's the largest United Methodist church yeah. in the United, well, actually in the world. Uh, there are wow. Korean Methodist churches that are larger, but they're not United Methodist. So yeah, we're the largest United Methodist church. Uh, and among mainline churches in the United States, depending on what you categorize as mainline, we're either the largest or one of the two or three largest. There's a couple yeah. of Presbyterian churches that are not a part of the sort of what are typically PCUSA. the mainline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so if you're looking at the more evangelical ones, then we're, we're right there with one or two others, I think, at least one other. Uh, no, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, most mainline denominations, frankly, evangelicals would agree, most evangelical denominations are not growing these days. Everybody seems to be stalled out. Uh, how yeah. do you explain sort of your outlier status and, and why you think, by the grace of God, your church was able to, to buck the trend? Yeah. Well, a lot of these things are things that you know and other people know. And we, uh, and, and I'll say also, you know, while we're continuing to grow, we've watched worship attendance slow down. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we know about that is that, at least in our setting, when we started, the average committed person was there three Sundays a month. And now, you know, we survey this, we take attendance every Sunday. I can 
go on our database and see the attendance of every single member every Sunday of the that? year. We have volunteer. Well, we have attendance notebooks that we pass during the service, and we ask them to sign in. We have uh, we have volunteers who log all ten thousand names in the computer every week. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. It's incredible. It is incredible. And then we uh, and then we try to encourage regular attendance. So when people join, one of the expectations for membership is please don't join unless you're willing to be here every single Sunday when you're not sick or out of town. If you're out of town, join us online, or if you're sick, you can join us online or, you know, and we know you won't be, you won't be able to fulfill that, but that's our goal is to have you here every week. And I tell folks, I want you to get at least a B in worship attendance. So a B in worship attendance means you, you miss no more, you get 80% or better. So you miss no more than 20%. If you get an A in worship attendance, and this is a silly little thing, but you know, people respond to what you reward. We put a little sticker on their name tags. So we have name tags. Everybody has clip on name tags. We put, seriously? And, you know, uh, seriously. That's and, and, awesome. You know, p- people are like, you know, I hear all the time, well, nobody wants to wear name tags. I'm like, well, you know, we've got our people used to doing it. And you put this little sticker on there and it just says uh, committed to worship and it has the year. And what we found is if we recognize them and I list them in the, my pastor's e-note, when we started doing this five years ago, we had like, I don't know, maybe a hundred people who were there, uh, 95% of the time or better. Yeah. Last year it was like 800. And as we wow. started recognizing this, people started responding. They're like, hey, you noticed that I'm here, you know, and, and it's a way. And I, if I see somebody with that little sticker on, I'm like, thank you so much for your commitment to worship, for being here every week. I'm so proud, you know, of, of your commitment. So, uh, you know, the, anyway, those are little things we've done to try to buck the trend of, you know, people who used to come three times a week coming once or three times a month coming once a month. But, you know, that's the thing is if people are coming less frequently to worship, you can have the same number of people, but your attendance is going to go down. You yeah. can grow and your attendance is going to stay flat, even though you're growing. And you ask those people, you know, are, so are you committed to church? Oh, yeah, I'm committed. I'm committed to Jesus. I'm committed to church. How often do you go? I'm there every Sunday. But then you look at their attendance, you realize they're not. <laughs> but I want to go back to your question of uh, what, what did we do? So I would say uh, one of the things that was interesting is we actually decided to be a mainline church. And we decided to do things in a way that looked more traditional and connected with people who didn't go to church who used to go to a church like this. They used to go to a Methodist, Presbyterian, Disciples, Catholic, Lutheran church. And that was somewhat unique. And and then we were constantly thinking about what does it sound like to somebody who's a non-religious person? What does it feel like to them? A lot of times the songs that we sing and how we sing, like 20 minutes of standing and singing does not work for non-religious people. Like they don't know if they even believe in God. So if I'm going to stand for 20 minutes while you all sing, I don't know. So we try to figure out, okay, what is, how do we do this in a way that helps the people who are Christians and want to worship a longer period of time uh, to do that while at the same time do it in a way that connects with the non-religious people. So, you know, we explained everything we were doing. Like, this is why we're doing this in worship. I explain the meaning of the Eucharist every time we have Holy Communion. I explain the meaning of baptism every week. We, we, uh, you know, we find, we, we introduce songs by, you know, by way of saying, hey, you know, this song was written at this time. And, and I want you to listen to this one line. Like, this is, this is powerful. And I learned this from the symphony here in Kansas City. And I went to a concert with the symphony conductor. It was for non-symphony people. And the symphony conductor is explaining, okay, listen to this crescendo. This is what the, this is what the composer wanted you to feel when you got there. And then they played him like, wow, that is really cool. But I would have never got that. It's somebody not taking the time to explain it. So anyway, some of that, uh, part of it was just a real dogged determination that we are a church for intentionally for reaching those who are non-religious and nominally religious. So it's in our bones. We talk about it. It's, it drives everything we do. The sermon series are built around that. The 
the uh, outreach is built around that. So we were really focused on this idea of building a Christian community where the disconnected, the non-religious and nominally religious are becoming deeply committed Christians. The sermons, I think, were designed to speak to that group of people. We had a major focus on serving the poor and addressing people in the community. And so this is a more affluent community. But many of those people wanted to make a difference in the world. And they realized, you know, too much is given, much is expected. And so we it's an expectation for membership. You have to, if you're going to join, you have to serve the poor in the community and you have to serve inside the walls of the church. And anyway, there's a number of these kind of things that, that no, I think helped us. That's helpful. A uh, couple of questions for you. One on music. You said, you know, if you're not a Christian, and we wrestle with this tension every week at Connexus, we want to create a church on church people love. So, yep. you know, we do to we limit the songs to like two or three worship songs? Do you do a, do a similar thing? What, what, what do you do to engage that tension? Because you're right, as yep. Rich Birch has said on numerous occasions uh, from Unseminary, it's like church is the only place people sing out loud in public anymore. That's it. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So, so a couple of things we did. One is we do have uh, one or two of our services where there's going to be a little more singing. And, uh, you know, so maybe there's four songs up front. And, uh, but typically it's going to be 14 minutes. There's going to be no more than 14 or 15 minutes up front in which we're singing. Actually, that includes the introduction and the welcome. So we're, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and then again, it's being mindful of the words to the songs, you know, they're, uh, like the hurricane song, I care what it's called, but you know, you get this, you know, the, the, the sloppy wet kiss. And I'm like, guys, don't either don't sing the song or change the words. Cause if I'm, uh, thinking, you know, person, I'm a thoughtful person. I've, and I've, I'm just trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing. You're going to talk about a sloppy wet kiss is the way I'm relating to God. That sounds great. If you're an eighth grade girl, it probably doesn't sound so awesome if you are a PhD and, you know, so we, we just try to figure out, okay. And likewise, we do this when it comes to inclusive language for people, you know, yeah. we're, we're looking at when it comes to, you know, our children are no longer learning the convention that man, male, me, he means everybody. You know, so in school, they don't learn that. So then they come to church, and it's one of the few places where we're still using exclusive language for human beings. And uh, so we try, to, we try to make sure that we're thoughtful about the language we use, the metaphors we use um, in our songs. And, and, and you know, most of the, uh, yeah, I would just say most of our folks are, are pretty good at thinking about that today and going, does that really fit our theology? Does it fit our, mm. uh, does it speak to, well, it's, and I had this, the last two weeks in our traditional service, I talked to our director of traditional music. I said, okay, you pick beautiful hymns, they're classic hymns, but those words no longer speak to people today. So what I'd like for you to do is rewrite the words. I want you to rewrite, the, take the same tune, speed it up a little bit. But I said, uh, there are several lines in there that are off-putting that don't reflect how we talk about God today. And uh, I, I don't remember even what they were. They were, just, you know, they were hymns you would, you would be familiar mm-hmm. with, but but when you're singing it, I'm standing there singing, I'm like, this is not, this cannot be connecting these people to God because these words don't, they're not the same words we use today. So let's put it in language that we would use today. Let's take the theology, keep the theology, and let's reword it a little bit. I got to ask about the attendance too, that idea of the red sticker uh, on, yeah. on, on, on their name tag. Um, I mean, obviously the, the cynic might say, great, so your attendance is up. It kept growing. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And every yeah. lead pastor is like, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, but what do you think it is doing for those members? Uh, obviously, there's a deeper theology under that talking to you. W- what do you think the benefit to the frequent attender is over the casual or infrequent attender? Yeah. So I think, uh, first of all, I remind our people going to being, first of all, you can go to worship online, right? Mm-hmm. And or on, it used to be on television. People could sit and watch Joel Osteen or whoever on television. 
there's something about being in the community that's important. And I tell our, I tell our members, so Sunday at the end of the time when they join, I, they, I had them join hands with people they didn't even know and pray for the person on their right and on their left in silence. And I said, I want you to look at those people. And, and here's the thing. If you stayed home and listened to a sermon online or something else, this is what you don't get. You don't get community. And community matters. Being with people. And we talk about stretcher bearers a lot here at the church uh, from the story of the uh, man who was paralyzed. And, you know, his friends carried him on the stretcher to Jesus, ripped off Peter's roof and lowered him down yeah. before uh, Jesus. I said, you know, we all need those. We all need those stretcher bearers. Those people are going to carry us when the wheels are coming off our life. And in order to have that, you've got to develop community. So that's one benefit of being together in worship and physically attending. In addition to that, there's something. So when I'm not in the pulpit, you know, I have a place at the lake that I where I write. And I worship every weekend online when I'm when I'm down at the lake. But I can tell you singing from my couch is not the same as singing with the rest of the believers there when we gather. Um, so again, the community is important, but my aim is every week when they're there, they are going to have an encounter with Christ in some way when they're in Jesus said, we're two or three are gathered. So I'm counting on the fact that there's going to be an encounter. We're praying for that. You know, mm. we pray in the room during the week for God's spirit to work through us and, and to ready the place for worship. So Musically, when we're singing together, musically, when we're listening to someone else sing the gospel, uh, the sermon, I'm counting on the fact that God is going to speak through the message somehow. It doesn't matter who the messenger is, uh, that there's something happens when we've adequately prepared that is going to deepen people's faith. And our, our goal is, again, in every worship service, that you're going to be intellectually, theologically, biblically informed as a result of being here. You're going to be spiritually transformed by what happens in worship, and you're going to be called to go serve God in the world. You're going to be inspired and equipped to go serve God in the world. So if somebody's there once a month, they're going to get 25% of that. And if somebody's there four times a month, they're going to get, you know, something every single week that I hope is going mm -hmm. to send them out. And we tell people, look, you know, one, one day at seven, you show up and you are, you know— you are remembering your true north. You're finding grace and forgiveness. You're remembering who you're called to be. You're experiencing the presence of God and in the context of communal worship. That matters. And uh, and I, you know, I firmly believe that. I just think that there's something to what happens when you've got worship that's well prepared. Now, a lot of times we prepare worship in churches. We can prepare worship in churches like it's a fast food meal or like it's a TV dinner. Of course, a lot of people don't know what those are anymore, but yeah. you know, so something that is not very nutritious. It's like a snack. Well, mm -hmm. if, worship, if your worship is like a snack, then people probably don't need to come very often. Uh, so if, true. You know, if your worship has some, you know, spiritual nourishment, if it's if it's nourishing to the soul, then people are going to grow by virtue of being there. And I I think that's what our aim is. We don't always hit that, you know. We, but that's our aim. So I, I don't know whether this is going to be an answerable question or not, but I'm thinking about the leader out there listening who's saying, okay, great. So we have blended worship. We do some traditional. We, we have a solid theology. Uh, sounds an awful lot like our church. We have very similar forms, a very similar approach. We have not thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Adam, tell me, where are the 10,000 people? How come we're stuck? How come we're declining? Is there, yep. is there anything else? Because I'm, I'm sure you get that. I mean, you're in a denomination where, you know, there are literally hundreds, maybe thousands of congregations doing a similar approach to what you're doing and not seeing those results where genuine, you know, 
unconvinced people are becoming followers of Jesus. So is is there something right. else in the in the air that like I'm just curious how you would yeah. answer that? Well, I think there's hundreds of small things, right? It's a lot yeah. of small things. And part of it is also, I mean, you know, clearly we've been very fortunate and we've built a, you know, there's a critical mass that comes along the way and you get enough people talking and, right. but we've experienced seasons of decline here at Resurrection. We've known what, you know, we've known both of those things. And, and I'll just tell you, being a pastor today and trying to develop a church and grow a church, which ultimately, hopefully we're really not as concerned about growing a church as we are about growing people and drawing them to yeah. Christ and forming Christian community. But, but the church matters. I mean, it was Jesus idea. And so it's hard it is, mm. it is hard. There have been seasons where I'm like, okay, what am I doing wrong? Why do I, do, do we need a new pastor here? Like, why are we not growing right now? What <laughs> is, you know, is it my preaching? Is it my persona? Is it, you know, and, and we tend to very, we tend to internalize that and assume that it's all, you know, as pastors, I think in particular, we feel like if, if only I were better, if only I were trying harder, if only I knew the secret magic stuff, we'd be growing. But the reality today is that most churches are not growing and we're living in a time, a, a cultural time where, and I don't see this reversing anytime soon, where it is, uh, there are more competing demands for our attention. It is not self-evident to people that if I go to church, I'm going to get something out of it, that it's going to be yeah. value added. And that's how people are, it's a consumeristic orientation that says, I need to know that there's value. And if I go to a church and the music's bad, or it doesn't speak to me, or I don't understand it, or the sermon was over my head, or didn't seem to move me in any way, why would I give that hour and 15 minutes to that when I could be walking and listening to a book on Audible or my favorite podcast while I'm jogging or, you know, whatever it might be? So we are, and, and I think the, the positive thing about this is, is it forces us to constantly be asking, is there some better way that we could be reaching these people? We know who our audience is. What's it going to take to connect with them? And uh, I've enjoyed it as a United Methodist pastor. I've had a group, uh, District of Assemblies of God churches say, would you please come teach us how to do this? I'm like, this is mm. kind of fun. You know, it used to be these Sundays of God were the ones who <laughs> flip, were, flip. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, vineyard churches and other churches like, please tell us how this is how this is working. And I, I will say there's a few other things that are just nuts and bolts things we talk about. Uh, a handful of things I'd mention because I teach on this all the time. Uh, one of those is excellent follow-up. So if we have a first-time visitor, we're going to follow up with them in an excellent way. You know, we're going to, it, whether that's the children in the nurseries and Sunday school or whether that's the person who worship. So, you know, and these all sound, sound gimmicky, but I will tell you, they we've done it from the very beginning. First time visitor shows up on Sunday, Sunday afternoon, somebody's on their doorstep with a coffee mug that says, hey, we're really glad you came. We don't want to come in. We just want to say, thank you for coming. We really hope you come again. They're going to get a note from somebody that week. Uh, you know, we don't go to their door and say, if you if you were to die tonight, do you know, beyond a shadow of doubt, you're going right, to heaven. Right. It's like, hey, we're really glad you came. Hey, the, okay, and, that's interesting. Can I, can I just interrupt for yeah, a second? Okay, yeah. you're the second leader, and I've, I've done so many interviews in the last few weeks. I'm trying to remember who it was, but listeners will correct me in the comments of the show notes. Uh, you're the second leader of a large growing church who says, I know this sounds weird. I know this does not sound 2018. But if you're at our church Sunday morning, we're knocking at your door by one or two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, and that's interesting. Do you get pushback to that? None. We do. I really? have not had any pushback ever from. Although people I get pushback from as pastors, like, well, no, that won't work today. I'm like, okay. Well. <laughs> you know, and you've been doing that. Of, was that like yeah. something you you almost started with day one years ago? Yeah. Day one. We did start on day yeah. one. I would. I would. Uh, and I did all of the mug deliveries to begin with. Today we'll have 
you know, 40 families visit on a given weekend at all of our different campuses. And so I can't do all those. In fact, I, you know, I only yeah. do it. I do it once a year at Christmas time, just so I can keep my fingers in it. And it's dreadful to think about. Like I would, I would like, oh, I hope they're not home, you know, when you're, when you're showing. <laughs> but, but then when you're standing at the door and you say, hey, don't worry, I don't want to come in. I just wanted to tell you, it really, we we're so glad you came today. This coffee mug is a sign of our welcome. Here's a little information about the church. And do you have any questions? And if they say no, we say, well, great. Listen, we hope to hope you come back again. And in those, you know, early years when they did come back, I could call them by name on the, oh, yeah. on the second Sunday. If I could call somebody by name on the second Sunday, they were going to join. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I tell our, you know, tell pastors is people, people don't become Christians primarily because of our superior theological arguments. They become Christians because we took the time to care and they felt a care from us. And that led them to go, well, maybe the stuff they're saying might be true. Yeah. And so it's about people. And, and this is one of the principles I tell people. It's all about people. So ministry is all about people connecting. It's all about people. We got to figure out how do we improve our EQ, our, you know, our skills with people, listening to them, caring for them. So that's, that, you know, that follow-up is one of those things. No, I, ju- I just wonder, Adam, whether people are so lonely and so isolated today, whether that is, I can't believe you did it. You know, ah. you, you did that. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and um, I think it was Seth Godin was saying that, uh, you know, somebody had a loss in their family and the customer service agent at Zappos, the online shoe retailer, uh, sent flowers and, yeah. you know, just reduced that person to tears. Yeah. And it wasn't, wasn't about the flowers. It was about, I can't believe some corporation, somebody in that customer service department cared enough to mark my grief and mark that yeah. moment. And That's a uh, great example, uh, yeah. Terry, because the people today... And this is, I, I find, you know, people are longing for somebody to notice. They're longing yeah. to feel like they're a human being in a very disconnected society. And when you go, when you surprise them by, and it's, again, it's the graciousness. It's not like somebody going to the door to come tell you about Jesus because you were there on Sunday. It's just somebody saying, we're really glad you came. Yeah. And we cared. We noticed you were here. And, you know, it, it would surprise them when we were small. I, it, over and over again, I would deliver a coffee mug to somebody's house and they'd say, you were the first pastor to follow up. We visited seven churches. You're the first pastor to follow up with us. I'm like, wow. But today people are like, we can't believe in a church this big that somebody actually showed up. And, you know, our aim is to try to figure out how do we take this big church and make it feel small. And hmm. so that, that, that people thing is a, is a big part can, of it. Can I ask so you another question that, that's really yeah. interesting in getting to where we are in a cultural moment? I've done a bit of writing on it in my blog, but this whole tension between imminence and transcendence, right? The character of God, God himself, is both imminent and transcendent, imminent being near, transcendent being so much bigger, you know, you got to leave the room. God's presence is here. We're, we're all going to die, right? right. And, and I find worship tends to be rather binary. It's either all transcendent mm. or it's all imminent. It's all very practical, five steps, five bullet points, all understandable. I wonder if in that traditional, like you've got the two services going on yeah. down the hall at the same time, do you see, even in the younger generation, a desire for the transcendent? Absolutely. I think, uh, and when people talk about being spiritual but not religious, there's something they're t- thinking about about the transcendence of God. They feel it on mm-hmm. the mountains. They feel it when they're, you know, when they look up at the stars at night or whatever. Um, this is one of the places. So I'm, I'm going to mention, I absolutely think this is what people, that people are longing for an encounter with the holy, an encounter with the transcendent God, while at the same time, the nearness and the connection with a God that's personal and knows me by name and cares about me. One of the things that we, so so 
I believe that often we have thrown out the tools that we have for experiencing the transcendence of God. One of those is architecture. So we, uh, we've become very utilitarian in the last, in America at least, I don't know in Canada, but in, yeah, in America, similar. very utilitarian on building boxes and dark boxes. And we can, now you can, with a dark box using lighting, create a sense of mystery in the transcendence. So that can, mm-hmm. that can work, but often we've missed what sacred architecture can do. Uh, you know, when we built our permanent sanctuary, we opened it in 2017. We said, we want a building that, that is a sermon in architecture. We want this building to preach. We want before a word is spoken or a note is played on an instrument for people to, to be in awe or to feel a sense of a God who's bigger than we are and to, and to hear the story. And the, you know, again, the stained glass window, your listeners maybe can go look it up online, but uh, it, it, tells the story. And, and I said, you know, I want to know that people can, can move, can come in here and they can hear the gospel in silence. And so architecture is a part of that. So is music. When I, last week, two weeks ago, when we kicked off this 11 o'clock contemporary service, I went down for the beginning of that. We had, and even there we're adding, you know, symbolic elements. We have acolytes lighting the candles. We carry in the banners, you know, even in the modern service, but hmm. you know, I was in the modern service and it was awesome modern, beautiful music and darkness and lights and, you know, all this kind of thing. And I was like, oh, that's so great. And I walked down the hallway and, and through the, you know, the back entrance to our main sanctuary and the orchestra was playing and the choir and the congress was singing this beautiful, holy, 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 I think it was. Yeah. And I walked in, I'm like, dang, I love the fact that we've got these two. And they are two totally different experiences, but but both are aiming at trying to get at both transcendence and eminence, both the, the God who is so awesome and so holy that you you know, that all you can do is bow down before God or, you know, just in awe and a God who knows our names and cares deeply for us. And, and I think good worship planning is important to that. Art and architecture is important to that. And even if you've got a black box and it's lighting and other things that we do, banners and other things we can do to, to foster a sense of that as well with the arts. I was with some church leaders with uh, ARC and, um, you know, Chris Hodge's organization, and they were showing me some pictures from Hillsong, Norway. That was just exactly what you said. And I think it was an old cathedral, but they lit it up with yep. just transcendent lighting. Um, it would be interesting, uh, and if you can't do it, I understand, but we do show notes for these. Is it possible to get a picture of that stained glass window in maybe your yes. uh, main auditorium? And we will actually put those right in the show notes so you can see it. Just Absolutely. That would be a good example. That would yep. be great. Thank you. Sure. Oh, wow. There's so many places. Okay, here, here's, here's a question I want to ask. Um, a lot of churches would say they're stuck in maintenance mode. So even though you have both the best of today and updated tradition that seems to really be connecting, I would say it doesn't sound to me like you're in maintenance mode at all. Like you're very much on mission, you're moving forward. Um, why do you think it is? Because you have the opportunity like um, you know, other leaders do to build into the wider church and speak into the wider church. Why do you think so many churches get stuck in maintenance mode? It is so easy to get stuck. I'm, you know, it's amazing to me at, at uh, 28 years as a congregation. And I find myself this way, like, you know, there'll be an area of ministry and I feel like, ah, it's not going very well. But I think, oh, I don't have the energy to do anything about that right now. And, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. you know, or, or I'll bring in the staff who are over that and, and they give me their reasons for why it's this way instead of, you know, being a jerk and saying, no, that's not acceptable. This has yeah. to change. And, I'll, and here, I, I'm going to give you this amount of time and if you can't change it by that amount of time, then we need to do something different. It's just so easy just to let things slide. And you let them slide long enough, 
and we, and we've done that here. We've had again seasons where I'm like, I have dropped the ball. I let I let things go for a while, and then you get this kind of feeling, the sick feeling in the pit of your stomach, like, man, I know this isn't right, but I I just am too worn out to do anything about it. And I think we all get burned out, you know, at times. We all get just tired. Uh, this year, we are reinventing a number of things in the in the congregation because we had our small group attendance had dropped dramatically over the last four or five years. And I let that happen. You know, I just, I, I would preach about it. We would try to do some things. I'd see a little bit of a, you know, something positive happening, but I, but I could still tell that we are sucking at this. We are not doing, we used to do this pretty well and we're just not doing it. And I would accept the excuses and, you know, I'd hear from staff people or whatever. I mean, I don't think they meant them as excuses. They just, you know, they were legitimate uh, reasons why things were the way they were. And we finally said, okay, this is not, this is not okay. And so we are going to do something. So, you know, I'm, I'm teaching tonight on a, a, my wife and I, a class on marriage. We've never done this before, but I've written about it, but, and I've preached about it, but we're teaching this thing to launch a new family night, to get families out for small groups. We've, I've been preaching into this. We've been, we hired a consultant to come in and look at and see, okay, what's going really well and what's not going so well. And what are the actual facts on the numbers of people in small groups? And, but you got to work at it. You know, it's, it's like, if you rest on your laurels, it's just, you can't, you can't stand still. You are, you and and there are things that we start that we need to quit, but we don't quit them because there's, you know, a number of people who love them the way they are. So you keep doing them because you don't want to make people mad. And and this is the other thing I find is over time we become so we as pastors become risk of you know risk averse and change averse. We we don't want to make changes because we know it's going to make some people mad, and we don't want to. We've we've been hurt enough times by the emails that were sent to us or the people who stomped out of the church or left. Well, we don't want to do that again. We don't want to intentionally cause that. And so we let it go. And so with all the best intentions, you know, we're not keeping the ball moving forward. And so, and I've done this many, many times. And, and I've thought to myself, and I started this church. And if I'm afraid to make changes, because I know I don't want to pay the price, what's that mean for the average guy who's gone to a church that's been there for a hundred years already? Yeah. And so it's, uh, you know, and then I think another piece of this is visioning for the future. Right now we're doing a 12 year, we're on a, this year we've devoted to looking at where do we think God is calling us to be by the year 2030. And usually we do one or two or three year strategic plans, but we said, you know, what if God had some really big things that would take 12 years to do, what would they be? And, uh, and I find again, that visioning excites people, you know, it helped that we started looking at who are we really, what are our, you know, what are our defining characteristics, revisiting our purpose, all these things. And then, and then being able to say, Okay, what is it? What is that? You know that we've been using the word moonshot. You know, to, what's the mm. moonshot that that God is calling us to do? And I'm feeling an excitement around this place I haven't felt in quite a long time. So you know, I've been through those seasons where we lose that that you know energy and passion and excitement, and then you you got to and it's true in marriage or anything else. You have seasons oh, yeah. like that. You're always reinventing. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you planted this church, but that was almost three decades ago. You probably, you're on iteration 3.0, 4.0, 5.0, or whatever yeah, of resurrection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did, as you've changed, because, you know, I've been in this long enough as well, not quite as long, but, you know, you got to reinvent yourself every few years, not only personally as a leader, but congregationally to stay fresh. And every time you do, most leaders run into opposition. Have you encountered, as you've sought to change resurrection, have you encountered opposition from within? And if so, what was it like and how did you handle it? Absolutely. Yeah, that's going to be a regular occurrence is, uh, is opposition. You know, if you're preaching anything worth preaching, 
you know, there's going to be some of your sermons where people are going to get mad or they're going to be offended by what you've said. Or, you know, and my aim is not to offend for the sake of offending. You know, I want to figure out how to influence people, not just irritate them. It's easy to irritate. It's harder That's to influence. Good. So, so I want to try to influence people, not yeah. irritate them. Don't yeah. miss that leaders. That's really good. Right. You know, and, and, and irritating is a side product of influencing sometimes, but if people just leave and they don't come back, then you didn't influence them. Right. They just left. And so you've got to figure out, you know, in our prophetic preaching and all the rest, how we do this. But, you know, regularly we have people who leave the church over something and it's painful. Um, and, you know, we try to be gracious and, uh, but that will happen. I, I'll tell you, there've been several seasons where we've, you know, so right now we're in the process of making some changes to our evening worship services. We're actually, I believe we're going to call it even song, which comes out of a 1500 year old tradition of the church, uh, you know, and change this evening services just slightly, but that's been a change for some of our musicians and, and, uh, for the choir that we had there and changing their style. And there's some of them who are, you know, I think probably, you know, uh, not, happy about the fact that we're looking at changes. And we did this at the nine o'clock service several years ago where people were really upset because we made a change. I said, look, we have, if we're going to reach new generations of people, we have to have at least one service on Sunday morning in the sanctuary that's going to be aimed at modern, not just the traditional. That was painful. And Mm. sometimes you make those changes and you realize you made a mistake and you got to go back and go, you know what? I'm sorry. We tried this. It didn't work. We're going to, but a lot of times we don't let, we don't let things ride long enough to see them through. We just cave into the criticism and, and when you came to the criticism, then you, you end up stuck. Um, I'll also say there's times where, uh, so you and I talked before the show began about the conflicts within the United Methodist church today and most mainline churches today, uh, related to same sex marriage and how we read the Bible, uh, related to same sex marriage. And, my own denomination next February is going to be having a powwow and there's, you know, I don't know how the vote's going to go. Maybe, maybe we'll vote to, we won't vote to change anything. I have a feeling we just can't get 800 people to agree to vote on anything. But, you know, this, this question is one that's very divides, uh, you know, that divides congregations today. And, and so I, you know, I preached on this, I think it was 2004 when our church was debating it, you know, in, in that year and my own views had shifted some. And I, and I shared in a sermon, my, you know, how I understood both scripture and how it, how the heart of God might speak to this. And we had, I'm trying to remember, it was 800 people, I think, left the church that year. Wow. And it was, uh, it was the most painful thing I've ever walked through in ministry. I, I questioned myself. Did I miss God's will? Did I fail you, God? I, you know, a lot, and I'm not prone to depression. I spent a year in a funk and, wow. uh, wondering if I needed to go somewhere else or leave or, and I was getting job offers, you know, at that time to go be president of a seminary or go here or there or whatever. And, and, uh, I remember my wife said to me in the middle of this, she said, I told her, I said, do you mind if we do something else? I can't do this for 20 more years. This, this hurts too much. And, uh, she said, well, I'll go with you anywhere. You feel God's calling us to go. I just have one question for you. Is God calling you to leave or are you running away? And I realized, you know, when I was thinking about leaving, I was, God wasn't calling me to leave. I was running away. I was, it was just too painful. So I, I hung in there, you know, and I'd go to church, but say, how are you doing pastor? Oh, I'm doing great. You know, I'm doing great. And I was, you know, you fake it, right? You just kind of cognitive dissonance. Yeah. 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 But, you know, I found, I, it was probably a year and three months later, I woke up one day and I didn't feel depressed anymore. I still felt shaken by the experience and, um, and, you know, I looked back and we had, we lost 800 people and a thousand people joined and we had, you know, and it's not about how many people join or leave. It's just, I, I just saw that God was calling some people to be at our church precisely because of the message I preached. Whereas 
other people said that's not who I can't be at that church. Uh, you know, those kind of issues, you can, you try to avoid those. You know, a lot of pastors are conflict avoiders. We're people pleasers and we don't want to, you know, to have people dislike us. But there are going to be times that you're going to, you're going to preach and you're going to try to lead your people and you're going to do it with gentleness and kindness and compassion. And at the same time, not everybody's going to make that journey, no matter what it is, whether it's shifting worship styles or it's, you know, whatever. I mean, in America today, Trump is the big, you know, is another one of those big pieces of, you know, how do you respond to Donald Trump? And I was listening this morning to NPR and Robert Jeffers out of uh, Dallas, you know, talking about, you know, the evangelicals who were championing Trump, Trump and, mm-hmm. you know, but then you've got other evangelicals and most mainline Christians who at best scratch their heads sometimes, you know, there may be, I like this policy or I'm grateful for the tax reduction, you know, reduction, but gosh, I don't think that's right. Or this mm. doesn't feel, you know, and, and I've got folks, I have folks who say, you're being too political. You're talking too much about these things. You're hinting at things I can tell. And I have other people like, why aren't you saying anything? Yeah. <laughs> In the same congregation, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so I, I get how, okay. Do you have a rule of thumb or some guidelines that you've developed to help you figure out when you need to listen to the opposition, okay, it's time for me to back off. I made a mistake. I need to apologize. Or when you're like, no, this is the right thing to do, whether that's theological or whether it's honestly just changing a service or, you know, saying no more choir or no more band or no more this or no more that or changing the color of the carpet. How do you know that the opposition is like, you guys are right, I'm wrong, um, we're going to change. Or like, no, I think I just got to plow through this one. Yeah. I think being careful about why are we doing this uh, is really important. And then and then honestly listening to the opposition to go, okay, do they have any valid points here? Uh, I just stood before a group of folks a few weeks ago who were upset about a potential change that was being contemplated. And I said, I just came to listen. So share with me what you're feeling, you know, and and so I listened to them and you know what, they had some good points to make. And I said, well, you know, we're going to think about this more. I appreciate your sharing this with us. And, and, but there are other times where I'm like, you know, guys, here's the reason why. And I, I hear what you're saying and I love you so much. I want you to know that I'm going to ask you just to go with me on this for a while, you know, and if we're wrong, we'll change it back. But I had this happen. We had uh, Stephen ministry. Are you familiar with this? Yeah. Yeah. Steve? Yeah. 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 So we had Stephen ministry for many years, a great ministry of empowering lay people, training and empowering lay people to do congregational care. And we felt like we needed to change models. I needed something that was, uh, it's more reactive. And I needed something where people are going to, they didn't wait to be called. We'd send people out to the hospitals. We have a team of about 150 lay people, lay ministers. They go to the hospitals, they show up at funerals, they're calling people in response to prayer request cards, they're doing all kinds of amazing stuff. And our Steve ministry wasn't really designed for that. And so I went to our Steve ministers and I said, we want to change the model. And I know this is painful and I want you all to come with, you know, with us on this journey. And, you know, they devoted hundreds of hours to this program and they'd been a part of it for years and, and they were mad. I mean, yeah. you know, some of them, they were just angry. And I'm like, guys, I, I love you. And what, you, what you're doing really matters. I'm going to ask you, would you give me just a year to try this? I really mm. think a year from now, you all will go, wow, this is awesome. And I understand I could be wrong. And if in a year from now, if this isn't working, I'm going to come back to you and beg for your forgiveness. So we're going to go right back to what we were doing before. But for this year, could we try this? And a year later, they were like, you were right. This was awesome. This, wow. this helped us, you know. So there's a variety of ways that we do that, but it's, it's carefully listening to the opposition, but 
at the same time going, okay, this is why we're doing this. We think this is, this is right. Nobody gets it right all the time either. No. So there've been, you know, there've been decisions we made. I've had to go back and, and apologize for them later and say, you know, I think we got it wrong there. This is an audio podcast, but if you guys could see Adam's face while he's explaining this to me, you would see empathy, you would see compassion, you would see concern. And, and I think a genuineness that I think probably really, really helps in a conflicted situation. Because sometimes we come in and we say the words, uh, but the body language is like, nope, I'm closed. You got, yeah. I'm just doing this to make you feel good. And, and I, I, I hope you caught it in his voice because it seemed very evident. So we talked a little bit about why congregations struggle. Um, just there's denominational leaders, mainline and evangelical, you know, of every stripe listening in right now. Why do you think so many denominations of every stripe are struggling today? Any thoughts on that? Well, I think denominations are a macrocosm of the local church. So you talk about how we get stuck as local churches. We're resistant to change. We're afraid, risk averse. Uh, so we get stuck and that's what happens with denominations and denominations. It's even harder because when it comes to, to leading change in a denomination, you've got denominational officials who have no real authority or power over the congregations or the people. And so, and it's easy for us to blame the denomination or the denominational officials. I mean, in the Methodist church, we, we love blaming the general boards and agencies of our denomination. You know, they're just sucking money out of us. They're, uh, that, you know, the bishops don't know what they're doing. The seminaries are, you know, so it's great for us to point our fingers at everybody else. And, but, you know, they're all just people. And in our case, when it comes to at least policy changes that we, we meet once every four years with 800 delegates from around the world, and we try to do Christian ethics by vote, you know, or we try to, I mean, it's just, a, it's a recipe for disaster. There's just, there's just, nobody would lead an organization that way. And, uh, and so I think organizations get stuck. And I think about, Oh, what's his name? Who wrote Leading Change um, from Harvard? Anyway. Oh, yeah, John uh, you know, Cotter. John Cotter. You know, I, I, his talk about, you know, he used to say the average American corporation is overmanaged and underled. Hmm. And I think I, when I ask United Methodists, what do you think? Uh, it's clear most United Methodists think our denomination is overmanaged and underled. We yeah. leadership, we're not giving as much of the inspiration and the vision casting and aligning resources to accomplish a goal. And instead, we're we're spending a lot more time rewriting the rules. And, uh, you know, and that's not very inspiring. And it's not very, you know, we need to free people up instead of putting imposing more rules on them. What would you say to pastors who might be articulating some of those frustrations that you've, you just, you know, shared? How should they handle their frustration with their denomination? Any advice? Yeah. So when we started Resurrection, my aim was to, I, I thought, okay, the only way, because my dream was I wanted to be a part of revitalizing the United Methodist Church. I, I felt that from the time I joined when I was 19, I thought this church has already been in decline for 19 years. I want to be a part of revitalizing it. So I thought, if you think back, how to win friends and influence people, Dale Carnegie, right? You don't influence, you don't win friends and influence people by uh, picking at them and criticizing them all the time. You win friends and influence people by modeling genuine empathy and compassion, by listening to them, by encouraging the good things they're doing. And, and so that's what we try to do as a, as a church. And I would just say, if you're in a denomination, you're frustrated, part of part of what you have to ask is what's the strategy for bringing change? And the strategy for bringing change I found wasn't criticizing other people. It was getting involved. It was rolling up my sleeves and showing I was committed and I cared and I cared about other people and I cared about my district superintendent and my bishop. Uh, We have 
what are called apportionments in the United Methodist Church. This is a, for our congregation, it's, um, it's about 10% of your operating budget. So it's yeah. about $2.4 million is our portion. Our budget is about 24 million or 25 million, $2.4 million we give to the denomination and it's used for shared mission and all these other things. And when we started the church, it was nothing. It was like $10,000 or something. We said, we said, and you typically pay it every month throughout the year. We said, let's pay it up front in advance at the beginning of the year. I wonder what kind of influence we would have if we paid that up front and we said, we care enough about the denomination. We're going to pre-fund this. And it may sound silly or like, like a strange thing, but like at least for the there was nobody who didn't get the message that we were committed to the yeah. denomination. We they were, heard it. We, yeah, they heard it. We care about this. And then, and then we're going to be, instead of bad-mouthing it, we're going to be positively speaking about our colleagues and about our denomination. And then we're going to look for ways to model what excellent ministry looks like in the United Methodist tradition. So people come to our, you know, we do a leadership institute, and most of the folks come are United Methodists. We'll have about 2,000 pastors and church leaders every year. And you know, when they come, we're just trying to show them, here's what it can look like in a United Methodist Church, and here's what we're proud of. And I, when I, sp- I speak across the country to United Methodist uh, conferences, and when I speak, I end by saying, I want you to know why I'm a United Methodist and what, what it is that, that makes my heart sing about this church. Not that we're better than anybody else, just that these are, and you know, when I'm finished, you know, inevitably, they're on their feet in applause. You know, it's like, yes, that's why I'm a United Methodist too, but they've kind of forgotten that in the— yeah in the grind of what's going on. And so I think what we need is people to help us remember, this is what's special about who you are, regardless of your denomination. I find local churches need their pastors to remind them, this is what's special about you. This is why I'm so proud to be your pastor. This is why I, I love this about you, you know? And, and as you do that, people feel that sense of, you know what, there is something God is doing here. We are special. A lot of churches I find are low morale churches right now. And as they've declined and it's maybe mm-hmm. some other church down the road is doing better, or they see that big mega church is doing something, but part of our job is to help build morale in those congregations to say, you know what, God is using us and we matter to God and we can make a difference in the world. And, and so I think that's part of the role of the leader is to help the local church believe in itself. I think part of our role is to lead up, right? If we're pastors in our denomination, we lead up by, you know, encouraging those who are ahead of us or, you know, who are overseeing us and we look for ways to model a better way. That's an impressive attitude to have 28 years in. Adam, what are some ways that you've kept yourself fresh over the years? Like, you know, your heart alive, engaged. You've talked about seasonality and even that really tough year where maybe you slid into depression. But, you know, it takes an awful lot of stamina to do this decade after decade. Yeah, it does. I I think um, perseverance is one of the factors or one of the keys to leaders who make a difference over the long haul. Because mm-hmm. all yeah. of us feel like, you know, I mean, Everybody, I think about Moses, you know, praying, please kill me now, God. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> I may have prayed that prayer at some point. Oh, my gosh. Over the I mean, years, yeah. We all feel that way sometimes. And and sometimes you're in one of those situations where that is a sign you need to step back. You need to do something different. And sometimes yeah. it's not. It's just like you got to put your shoes back on and go again, you know. And, and so for me, uh, I would say um, reading helps. Uh, sabbatical leaves. I, you know, our church has a sabbatical policy once, once every, once I've finished six or seven years, it's generally six. I usually do it at seven years, but at seven years, then I have two or three months off to go study and renew. And I've t- taken three sabbatical leaves. That's been hugely helpful. I've tried to figure out what are the things that re-energize me. So like one of the things I love to do is I love to travel and to prepare sermons kind of in location. So 
I did a series of sermons on John Wesley, and I preached uh, and and I filmed the you know various B-roll clips from England in this, and I went to the places that were important in his life, and then I talked about his theology and and you know the biblical grounding for it. I've done these series on Jesus, uh, three different series on Jesus, where I preached in the Holy Land. Some of the sermons I actually preached from the Holy Land, uploaded them, and then they you know. I uh, did the Journeys of Paul across uh, Europe. I did um, uh, Martin Luther for the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I preached two sermons from Germany uh, to our people, and we went to follow Martin Luther's life. And, like, that was energizing for me. You know, I knew of all these places, but I'd never been there. And uh, I did a series on Moses when I went to Egypt, and uh, I preached from Africa, uh, you know, via, via video. Most of the time we film there, and then we then I come back and preach it with B-roll. But I'm energized by that. I'm, I'm leaving in a month. Uh, with a rabbi friend of mine to go to Israel, and we're going to be filming a series on King David. Hmm. And he and I are going to preach three sermons uh, from the Holy Land back to our congregations. And the same sermon as going to the synagogue is coming to our congregation. So it's a, wow. it's going to be a really interesting, cool deal. I'm pretty fired up about that, you know? And, and so there's that kind of stuff. There's reading. I, I think I, you know, I pray more than I've ever prayed. I think I read scripture more than I've ever read scripture. I am I, I walk, I'm trying to exercise more and exercising, I pray and I walk and I don't know, I think all those things. And then I have a granddaughter, that's renewed my oh, faith. Oh, you have a granddaughter, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exhausting and exhilarating at the same oh, time, awesome. right? Yeah. Um, what do the first few hours of your day look like? So, uh, you know, I, I start on my knees, uh, just a short time of prayer. I'll pray for maybe five or 10 minutes on my knees next to my bed. I take the time to read scripture for a little while, another maybe five or 10 minutes, not a long you know, drawn out at devotional time. I wish I had more of that. Depending on the day of the week, I'm either in, in my office or, you know, in a meeting or at home, uh, working my home study. Uh, Tuesdays and Wednesdays are sermon writing and worship planning. So I'm in, I'm reading and researching all day on Tuesday. Wednesday, I'm writing the first draft and I'm in worship meetings. Evening meetings, Wednesday nights, Thursdays, I'm in meetings all day long. Uh, before I go to bed at night, I'm back, you know, in prayer. I'll pray four or five times throughout the day, but I'm not a, I'm not a spend two hours praying. You know, I might take right. a 30, 40 minute walk and I'll pray for 20 minutes of that. Maybe. Everyone's got their own thing, but that's renewing yeah. for you, right? It's renewing it for is. you. I'm mm-hmm. going to turn the computer around and you can kind of see my desk here. Let's see if I can. Oh, yeah. So, so this is, oh, yeah. uh, this is this week's sermon. This is the mess. There's your picture over there on my desk. From the, <laughs> but, uh, your briefing notes. My yeah, briefing yeah. notes. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so I, I can't tell you that I have this, other than what I just described, a really deep devotional. It's more just sort of the rhythm of my life. Is that an Apple II behind you? No, that's my first Mac 512. That's a Uh, Mac 512. Wow. 1980, let's see when they buy it, 1985, late uh, late 1985, and it still runs. It still runs... should be a video podcast and we will not disclose your location or it may disappear. There'll there'll be some listener who's like, I want that. That's amazing. What, what year is that? Oh, that was built in 1984, uh, late 84. And I bought it used in 85. I've got an Apple Lisa, uh, over here on another table. Uh, The Apple Lisa was the predecessor to the Mac and it sold for $10,000 the year it came out in 1982. And uh, then I've got, I'm looking at from where I'm sitting about uh, 10 different Apple computers that I have in my, here on my library shelves uh, of different, you know, Macs that either I owned that were, you know, that I, I'm a collector of these things or that I bought on eBay. Uh, so I got a lot of, and I got almost every iPhone, all the iPads, the Apple Newton. Yeah. Anyway, so you got I'm, it all. That's a, that's a hobby. That's a passion of yours. 
Exactly. Isn't that and fascinating? This, this 512 is for me a model of uh, where we are as a church. In fact, I take it out when I'm speaking here at the church and just say, you know, this, this computer will still run Microsoft Word version 1.0. It takes wow. 10 minutes to boot up uh, and it can do very little compared to what the new computers can do. And this computer's not that old. So it's 33 years old. The average church hasn't been remodeled in 30 years. Uh, the average church's worship hasn't changed in 30 years. And I ask people if Apple were, in, you know, when they made this, it was the best thing since ice cream. Imagine if Apple just said, we just made the coolest thing ever. We're never going to change it. Nah. Apple wouldn't be in business today. Instead, they're constantly, you know, generating new ideas. They're constantly looking at how do they change. And likewise, for a church, we've got to be able to, you know, constantly be asking. It's We're not changing the gospel, but how does it speak to the world today, and how do we speak it to the world today? How do we do ministry in a in a changing society and world? That's a great analogy. I got to ask one more nerdy question: Is that the original uh, video iPod from two thousand four? Uh, no, it's not. I, I wish I that? had. Uh, this is a. Uh, uh, let me see. This is a. This one was from two thousand five. So oh, it would have been close. the next generation. Yeah, it's pretty close. Next generation was that the one that came preloaded with Vertigo? Remember that? Uh, yeah, no, that was a couple generations after that one, I think. But yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, I got yeah, my, you, you know more about that than I do. Yeah. But that's good. What do you do for hobbies for fun? Um, I'll travel, collect computers. You know, I, I love to travel. Uh, I collect baseball cards too, but I don't really focus a lot on that. I, I just, every once in a while, I'll play with that. So I have a tractor. My wife and I live on 13 acres out in the country, and I have a John Deere tractor, uh, old 1964 3020 tractor, pretty big tractor, and I just could play on that. We have motorcycles. My wife and I ride motorcycles. Oh, wow. But most of the time right now, it's our granddaughter. She's four, mm. and she is just such an important part of our lives that I can't imagine not having her around. So most of the time, at least a couple times a month, we're, you know, actually now it's about every week we see her at least one day. And that's, that's awesome. We go to the theater and movies and yeah, have, you know, go out with friends. Adam, this has been so much fun. Uh, if you had one piece of advice to give a leader who feels like they're staring up a very long mountain and a big climb ahead, what would you say to them? Yeah, I would say, uh, I would say a couple things. Don't give up. And Figure out what really matters to you. What is it that what is it that is what is it that you feel so strongly about, you feel so passionate about that you would be willing to give up everything else for it? And you know, for me it was our purpose statement of building a Christian community for the disconnected, the non-religious and nominally religious, and helping them find Christ. And that makes my heart beat. And I'm willing to do whatever I need to do to try to make that happen. But figuring out what is it, what is the thing? And one of the things, so we have these consultants. Uh, study us this last year, and they said there are four things about you as a congregation that seem to stand out. And they were four things, you know, that they did. They got it right. You know, they captured it. You know, we are we are a congregation that is outwardly focused on trying to connect with non-religious people, but also trying to serve the poor and mm. help Kansas City look like the kingdom of God. Uh, they said you are uh, intellectually provocative, or you provoke not provocative. They said you provoke thought. You are challenging people to think and to engage their intellects in their, when it comes to their faith and how they read the Bible. You are bridge building. You're constantly looking at ways to bring the left and the right together and to build bridges instead of walls. That just, everything you do, it seems like it, it just pours out and you radiate hope. You have this idea that, you know, and we talk about this a lot, quoting Frederick Buechner, you know, the worst thing is never the last thing and that the resurrection says there's always hope. And 
And when they said those four things, I thought, they just nailed us. That, that is, yeah. in, in part, that is who I am. And so figuring out who are you, not, not who do you wish you were, but what is it that makes your heart be faster? How are you wired? And, and then figuring out, okay, so what does God call me to do with that? And I think once you can live into who you're wired to be, and then you can own that, and you can just say, you know what, that's who I am. And if you're somebody who needs, if that doesn't work for you, it's okay. But that's who God has wired me to be. And God doesn't need everybody to be like me, but that's who I, I happen to be. And that's who this church is. And so for our congregation, we named these in a sermon a few weeks ago, and we did a minty poll with their cell phones, you know, where they could vote. Yeah. I said, you know, just tell me, which of these four do you think best connects with you? And, you know, 80% of the people, 80 to 90% voted for all four of them, you know, or, yeah. or everyone. And when they left, they were like, yeah, that is who we are. And I said, so that's your, that's your elevator speech. That's what you've got. When somebody says, what's Church of the Resurrection like? You know, we're people who are trying to follow Jesus, and we are outwardly focused, and we are uh, thought-provoking, and we are bridge-building, and we are radiating hope. Mm-hmm. And so if you can figure out what your elevator speech is about who you are and what makes your heart beat faster, and then you can live into that unapologetically, I think that's a, that's a good thing. That's a good word. We'll have uh, all the links to everything we talked about in the show notes, but if people want to go direct to find you or Church of the Resurrection online, what are some good websites to yep. do that at? So core.org, C-O-R for Church of Resurrection, core.org uh, is our main website. On Facebook, I'm at Pastor Adam Hamilton. And because there's inevitably fake Facebook people out there every week posting Facebook, fake accounts on my, in my name, uh, it's a organizational webpage. There'll be 40,000 plus followers. So look for that one and not the fake ones. And then uh, on Twitter, I'm uh, at Rev Adam Hamilton. And so, and then I have a, my own uh, personal blog, um, adamhamilton.org. And so any of those would be great places to, uh, to find me or to find out more about what we're doing. Adam, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Oh, it was great to be with you today. Thanks for having me. Man, I so enjoyed it. And actually seeing his Apple collection, his computer collection, pretty, pretty impressive. I don't know. Do you have a hobby? Like, what do you do for fun? Do you know that's a major issue? Max Lucado talked about that a couple of weeks ago on the podcast where he, he went to see his doctor and his doctor said, you don't do anything in your life that doesn't count. You need to do something that doesn't count. So he took up golf. You know, I took up barbecue, boating, bicycling, just sticking with the bees, never got to see. Uh, Adam collects computers. What do you do? You know, that's part of nurturing your soul. So pardon the extended introduction today, but uh, I think this stuff's really important. And if you're a young leader, the more you do that now, it's kind of like putting money in the bank. You know, if you put a dollar in the bank now, you're like, ooh, it's a dollar and two next year. Uh, but over time, that really, really accumulates with interest. Same thing with your character. So anyway, that's here endeth today's sermon. But we are back next week with a fresh episode. I'm so excited to be welcoming two a guest next week. Craig Rochelle is back and we are going to talk about hope in the dark. Um, man, oh man, that book has been helping so, so many people. And that's next week. And then uh, next Tuesday, Terry Smith is with us and he talks about creating a hospitable culture at your church or in your organization. Here's an excerpt from that episode. There are certain types of leaders who lived and who live beautiful lives. You look at Eugene Peterson, He's big on this idea of of, uh, finding pleasure in life. But then you look at other leaders that I reference in the hospitable leader in this regard, C.S. Lewis or or Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, These guys knew how to have fun. They knew how to enjoy a meal. They knew how to build friendships. They enjoyed the good and beautiful things of this world. 
So Jesus, the holiest man who ever lived, said that he came enjoying life. I think we can do the most serious work in the world, but do it better when we have a thread of feasting in our life. Well, guys, hey, make sure to give some love to our sponsors. They are one of the reasons we can do this and bring you multiple episodes a month, uh, hopefully professionally produced. Toby does a great job. I'm doing my part. Go to pushpay.com forward slash carry. Take advantage of their special offer. If you want to leverage technology to reach your members beyond Sunday, both in giving and engagement, and then remodelhealth.com can save you sixty dollars to $100,000 a year to repurpose toward ministry. Visit remodelhealth.com forward slash carry where you can find out more and receive a free quote and buying guide today. And thank you so much to our partners. They're people we trust. I think you're going to be better off when you check those guys out. So next week, two episodes and a whole lot more going on. So appreciate you guys. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.